Our first reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through to 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, <clears throat> and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as, a dis as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illeg illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. The second reading comes from Leviticus chapter 26, verses 1 to 13. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves, and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you follow my decrees and, and be careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops, and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favour, and make you fruitful and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move, out, move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. Good evening. 
What's the difference between self-control and self-discipline? We're going to look at that tonight. Self-control means to say no, to stop doing something, not to uh, go and do something that you know God wouldn't want you to do. And what's self-discipline? That's the opposite. It means go. It means fix your mind and your, your desire on doing something and go and do it. Both of these are important to both these passages tonight. Now, I was a 17-year-old. I was in high school. I left high school. Didn't quite finish high school. Left high school to join the police cadets. Got on, drove to Campbelltown every day. Got on a train. Went an hour and a half to Sydney. Got off at Central. Walked to Redfern Police Academy. Had to be there by 7.30 a.m. every morning. And then when we got there... Uh, it was semi-military so that they would uh, uh, line you up and parade you around and march you and do all sorts of things like that, which was great fun. And, uh, and they had really strenuous physical training and uh, we used to go into Moore Park and, and they had uh, you take your loop around Centennial Park, which was 10Ks, or you'd go up uh, the big hill at Moore Park. It's a monster. And it's got a couple of levels. You still get up the first part, I think you made it, and there's a bit more and it's really hard. And it was really strenuous and really um, difficult. And they were trying to teach us uh, self-control and self-discipline, to, to, to say no to certain things and to really strive for others. And uh, um, I don't know whether they did it. But anyway, um, I remember on parades, and we, uh, we used to have the police uniform in those days. was a really old one. And it was um, really heavyweight sort of woolen tunic and trousers and long sleeve, thick shirt and tie. You wore it summer and winter. I was okay in winter, but in the middle of summer in Sydney, on a really stinking hot day, about 38 degrees, on the parade ground, the bitumen parade ground in Redfern, in the middle of the day when a passing out parade's on, and you've got to stand there for about an hour and a half, two hours, it was a bit tough. And we sort of had to learn the ability just to be so um, controlled that we'd say no to fainting, no to passing out, and no to moving, because you're not allowed to move. You've got to stand still. You could wriggle your toes, you could just do some stuff, but they couldn't see you move. And uh, you had to learn to sort of do that and not, uh, and not look around because you stand next to me and you go, bang, someone, who's that gone over down there? And we used to sort of have a competition because I was in the cadets. And there were police would come in, do six week course, and then pass out, do the parade. Well, they would pass out in the parade. Uh, but it was a passing out parade, it was called. And they would do their six week things. And because we're cadets, we're doing this about every couple of months. And we're used to this. And we're used, well, as used to it could be. And so we think, I wonder how many of them will go down before any of us go down. <laughs> it's the sort of game we'd play, you know? And we usually won. Um, but it was, it was a really um, effective way of forcing you forcing you to control yourself and not just, you know, I want a drink, I'll just walk off and get, no, you can't get a drink. And in fact, you can't move. You've got to control your body. And the self-discipline, I'll just see this to the end. Come on, I'll get through this. And they were really invaluable lessons to learn because we all need them. And I found from that, and I also found later on, long distance running, I had run and you come to a big hill and you think, oh, I've had enough. But you'd reach in, you find some more energy, get over the hill and you go a bit harder. Or in the gym, you'd be lifting weights. And, you'd, you know, one day I was in the gym at Sydney University when I was in more college. And I just didn't feel like lifting any weights. I just, I don't know. And, you know, I mean, we were lifting somewhere down 16, 20 tonne of weights. There's a lot of weight. And I just didn't feel like lifting any. And, my, and suddenly I was getting slapped around by a bishop of the diocese. He was over me going, bang, bang, come on, Wayne, get going. 
is Al Stewart. He was my training partner. He's now a bishop. And Al's bashing into me. And all the people looking, what's going on, you know? In fact, it turned out that uh, that was my best day. I actually got motivated after Al got off me and <laughs> lifted more than I'd done before. But I, I found from all those sort of things, I had inside of me, I had uh, reserves that I just didn't know I had. And I had heaps of reserves. And it all comes through your mind of latching into those reserves. And we need that at times because sometimes we really get pushed to the limit and we feel like, you know, I want to give up. But we need to keep going because it involves people or it's important. Or we might sort of say, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do something, I'm going to attack, I'm going to do something violent. No, we can't do that. It's going to make it worse. We need to have self-control to say no. We need to have um, self-discipline just to keep going. And we've got far more than we recognise. You teach that from little children. Once babies are born, you've got to teach them those things. You know, no, don't do this. Yes, do that. You've got to teach them. I hope you use the carrot rather than the stick. That's how you're supposed to do it. But you need to teach them. And we need to keep learning that more and more and more as we get older because the biggest test is yet to come for everyone. We all now get tested in our body. Our body has things that go wrong or right and we, our body affects you know, how we perform in life and uh, we just can't help that. But we're moving to a point in life where this body I have, which I really like this body, I really like it, but it's going to let me down. It lets me down a bit every now and then, but one day it's going to let me down big time. It's not going to work. It's going to stop functioning. We call that death and that's going to be for every single person. And at that point, that's going to really test out how much I'm trusting God. Can I, can I have that self-discipline in me to keep trusting God when things go wrong in my life, when I'm struggling with health issues or relationship issues now, and that's going to keep growing me so that when the big test comes at the end of life, can I trust God? Can I trust that he'll look after me? We've all got that lesson to learn. And there's lots of little lessons along the way as we trust in God, as we say no to this self-control and we have self-discipline. Yes, we do it the way God wants us to do it and we keep growing. That's what tonight's all about. That's what these two passages are about. Let's have a look at them. First of all, the Leviticus passage. In Leviticus chapter 26, the end of Leviticus, we've been looking at that for a few weeks now, and we have this really great picture of uh, really describing a sort of heavenly situation of God with his people, and everything's just going really well. It's an abundant life and an easy life, but it all starts right at the beginning where God says in verse 26, uh, chapter 26, verse 1, at the end of verse 1, he says, I am the Lord your God. He'll say that later on too. I, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who's taken you out of Egypt. I'm the one who's called you to be my people, who's spoken to Moses. I've revealed my special name to you, Yahweh, which I've given to you. And, and I really want a relationship with you. And I've called you out. I've brought you out with plagues, part of the Red Sea, brought you in the wilderness, given water where there's no water, give you food where there's no food. I'm looking after you. I'm your God. And that's important because there and now, all around them, there's these false gods in other nations and they're going to encounter them over and over and over. And people are going to be saying, look, this, this hill, this tree, this shrub, this shape, this whatever is a god. And you pray to that and you do that and it'll give you all these things. Everywhere they go, they're going to have that problem. Look what it says at the beginning of verse 1. Do not make idols or set up an image 
or a sacred stone for yourself. Do not place a calf stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Don't worship anything else. Even if other people do and they say they work, don't worship them. Have nothing to do with them. I am your God. So say no to that. Self-control. No, we won't have those. Yes, we're going to keep following God. Self-discipline. And verse 3 says it's conditional. If you follow my decrees and you are careful to obey my commands, I'll send rain and so forth. So it's an important thing to be careful to obey God's commands. To know what they are and be committed to them. Obedience is the key to the blessing that's going to follow. And the blessing that follows in verse three, verse 4 talks about rain and great crops coming from that. And remember, this is a farming community. There wasn't any factories. There was no offices. There was no, it was just a farms. And everything came from the farm. You grew it. And that was where you got your not just something to eat, but also got your wealth and your prosperity and, and livelihood came from the farm. And so if you had rain like we really need, um, things grew. And when things grew, you had not just food to eat, but you had food to sell and food to make life good. And, and it was a great time. And it's talking here about verse 5, abundant, great harvest, no worry about food supply. Uh, it'll just have more and more and more food. In fact, harvests will overlap. You'll, have a, you'll be uh, growing the last crop and, and uh, growing a new crop, harvesting the old crop, and there'll become time to harvest the new. There'll be just ongoing harvests. It's just the best possible situation if you're a farmer. In verse 6, I'll give you, um, grant you peace. They'll have national security. That's really important for them. They're in Palestine, an area which is really unsettled. They need to have that. Later, there'll be warring armies coming down. The Egyptians will come up and the Assyrian and Babylonian armies will come down. They'll fight each other, but they'll also fight around Jerusalem. They need that security that God will give them. If enemies attack, in verse 7, they'll have easy, convincing victories, which they had under particularly King David and Joshua too. Verse 9, I'll look on you with favour and make you fruitful and increase your numbers. You'll prosper as a nation. There'll be a large group of people. Remember, they're a large group of people, but they're landless right now, and God's going to give them a place to go. With overlapping harvests in verse 10. And it says in verse 11, I will put my dwelling place among you. I will not adhor you. At whore means have nothing to do with, put away. And that's how they felt for 400 odd years, 430 years in Egypt while they were slaves, that God had put them away. God had ignored them, shut them out. And God's saying, that's not going to happen again. You need to learn a lesson. You need to, things need to happen. It's all part of the plan. And I haven't forgotten you. And never will you be without me again. I'll be with you. Verse 12, he says, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Your God, my people. They're covenant terms. The covenant that God made right back with, with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 said to Abraham, um, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a place to live and you're going to enjoy my rule where you'll have blessings and benefit from it. The problem is Abraham at that point was married to Sarah or Sarai. And had no children, couldn't have children. He was 90. No children. And God's saying, I'm going to make you a great nation. In fact, when Sarah heard that, she laughed about it. She thought it was a joke. And God did that. 
And now they are a nation because we read here uh, back in Exodus as they come out, there's 600 men of fighting age come out of Egypt. That's not including the women, the children, the older men, the younger men. We think there's somewhere about one, one and a half, two million. We just don't know. But there's a lot of people. And God's covenant promises to them is that I'll make you a great nation. Well, now they are a nation. They just don't have a place to be their own. And God's taking them there. But they've got some things to learn along the way. There's no good being a great nation, a great people, if you're not going to submit to God and honour God and obey God. And so they need to learn that control and that self-discipline to be God's people. The second part of Leviticus chapter 26 is all about punishment if you disobey. If you do the wrong thing, good things will come if you obey God. But if you don't, the flip side is it's not going to be good. All this stuff in Leviticus, the good things that God promises, the rewards for obedience, the blessings, they sort of didn't really come. Israel got a bit of it for a while, but not permanently. Um, bits and pieces come and go because all the leaders had their faults, even King David. They didn't have that prosperity of Leviticus 26. And there will always remain a future hope of that happening. And we see it recorded in Revelation 22 about a new heaven and new earth where those things are all going to take place. So it's promised there. It didn't really happen because they didn't obey God. They struggled with sin as we've been talking about the last few weeks. And now Jesus has come and now there's still that promise of Leviticus 26, but it's now through Jesus and going to be in heaven. Well, let's have a look at Hebrews now as we go on to understand more about this. Because Hebrews is living now in the real world, our world. And in Hebrews 12, it follows Hebrews 11, which talks about people of, great people of faith. And what is faith? First, chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. And then it's going to give a whole a lot of examples. Faith. Faith is something you are hoping for. And you, you're actually not seeing it yet. You know, I mean, like you could say, um, you know, I had faith tonight I'd come and see Peter Huxley because he's leading the service. And I could have said that this afternoon because I know Peter's a reliable and I have faith he'll come. But I'd be silly to say I have faith that Peter Huxley's going to lead the service when he's sitting right there and he's been leading it. You don't use faith in that way. Once someone's doing something or it's happening, you don't talk about faith. Faith is always looking to the future. Faith always has an element. You don't see it. It hasn't happened yet. It's still to come. That's how faith works. So we're seeing all these great ones of the Old Testament had faith because those promises to Leviticus hadn't occurred. And they still had a hope of God's covenant and God's blessing upon them. And it was always going to be a future thing and a future thing and a future thing. But they were people who had hope. They had hope because they trusted in God's promises. They could have that, that self-discipline to just remain trusting in God, remain focusing God, say no to other gods, say no to disobeying God and just keep going, trusting God with all the discipline that's required there. We'll go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, that's all the ones in Hebrews 11, 
Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. God's people are living in a real world and it is like a race. It's, we need to run with perseverance. We need to be people who, who continue to trust God, who have that self-discipline to rely on God, saying no to anything that's contrary to God. And the loyalty and endurance is bearing witness of those people we've seen in the past, and particularly now in Jesus Christ, which we'll look at in a moment. To persevere, to continue to have our eyes set on something, our goal. And that goes what it talks about in verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's like an athlete who keeps his eye fixed on the, on the goal, the, the, the end point of what he's competing for, and he presses on towards that. And we're called to keep our eyes on Jesus from the start of our Christian life, which is what we do, is how we become a Christian. We turn to Jesus, we look at him, we, we seek his forgiveness, we focus our eyes on Jesus. We're called to do that from the start until the finish of our Christian life is when we get to heaven. Keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. And Jesus is said to be the, the, in faith our pioneer and perfecter because he blazed the way, the trail of faith. Um, he himself ran the race to a triumphant finish. The whole of Jesus' life was characterised by unbroken and unquestioning faith in his heavenly Father. And no more than can be seen in Gethsemane the night before he died, as recorded in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Jesus, he knows he's going to be crucified on the cross. He knows that God's going to pour on him the wrath of all the punishment for our sins. He's not worried about his death. He knows he's going to rise again. He knows the plan. But at this point, he's going to see that dark side of God that he's never, ever experienced. And he says to God, you know, if, take this cup away from me, you know, if I can, but not my will, yours be done. And so Jesus' faith is to trust God, even though he knows what he's facing and, it, and it's not good. And, you know, if you're human, you think, oh, I'll just take a time out, God. We'll just have a bit of a break from this. No. Jesus had self-control. He was in a uh, garden of Gethsemane. He could have just snuck off into the dark and got away when they came to arrest him. It would have been so easy to escape. Easy. He didn't. In fact, he identified himself and went towards them. So he was controlled to say, no, I won't run away. No, I can't do this. And, and discipline saying, this has got to happen. This is God's plan. I don't like it. But it's got to happen. And he does that. So he endures the cross and all the shame of that. It was a public humiliation. It was a horrible death. Everyone saw you stripped off. You're dying there for hours. It was horrible. But he knew he was going to rise victorious. And he endured all that shame with, with a joy that he knew in the end he was going to save us from our sin. He was going to be that one true sacrifice for all that we've been looking at in Hebrews and Leviticus the last few weeks. And sacrifices would be gone forever because of his one sacrifice for us. And not just that, we'd be forgiven, but also he'd open up heaven and a whole new life for us with God. And that was the joy that he had. As he faced that horrible death. Peter talked about Tyndale tonight. I want to take you back about a thousand 
300 years to 380 AD, 390 AD. In uh, North Africa, uh, there was a guy called Augustine. And Augustine was, um, was a young bloke. He was about 30. Uh, he was uh, just a have fun young bloke. He was going to parties and getting drunk. He had, a, he had a girlfriend. She had a baby and they're living together. And he's just having a wild life. Life is all carefree and whoa, go for it. And then he has an encounter with Jesus in the scriptures. And he recognises that Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sin. He knew he was easily convicted of his sin. He knew that. But he had his eyes open to Jesus dying on the cross for him. And he could see the love of the Father in that plan that Jesus would die and the love of Jesus that he would take his sin on the cross and that he would be forgiven and that he would rise again and open up life forever with God. And Augustine just goes, wow, really? He's just taken back. He, he just is just stopped in his tracks and he just goes, whoa, this is tremendous. In fact, he writes, he converts to being Christian and, and goes on from there. But he writes at this point, he says, from that moment on, I thought I was having a wild time. I thought I was having parties. I thought I was having great excitement and, and, and everything was going well. He said there was nothing compared to following Jesus. It was just so much better to have Jesus. And every time he focused on Jesus and remembered who Jesus is and remembered what he'd done, it was just, wow, oh, this is so good. And he treasured Jesus above all things. And he had a joy of being saved by Jesus that nothing and no one could take away. And life was going to be hard for him. He was going to be challenged. He was going to be, going to be bishop. And he was, a, he was a great theologian and a great apologist who um, spoke against heresies and so forth. In fact, he was one of the really great ones. Calvin often referred to him. And other, others that followed many, many years later uh, went back to Augustine. He was a real pioneer of the faith in a public way. But it was that encounter with Jesus that changed him. It's that same encounter you and I have all had. And we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus here. We need to refix our eyes on Jesus dying on the cross for us. And if we need self-control and self-discipline, that will give it to us. Because we see what he's done, we say, well, I'm not going to do things that are not displeasing God and I want to go for you, Jesus. I want to run that race. I want to just keep focused on you and pleasing you and living my life for you. And as we do that, God's going to be working because it says in verse 5, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as son. Discipline here is teaching, training us. It's not discipline as in punishment and, and harsh and hard. It's more the carrot than the stick. But it's God says that he's going to, his people, as they run this race with perseverance, as they exercise self-control and self-discipline pressing on, he's going to be at work. He's going to teach us and train us and grow us in Christ. We're going to endure hardships, verse 7. Endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Life is going to have its tests. It's going to be hard at times. 
But those hardships are all going to be ways of us seeing more how important Jesus is and how in Jesus Christ we can just keep going forward. And we have these reserves of energy, of reserves of faith, reserves of, of power to do things from God that we're just not aware of, but they're there and that's going to cause us to draw on those and get to know God more and rely on more and be clear, more clearly focused on Jesus and just power through. We might get some damage on the way. It might not be easy, but we'll get through them. And verse 10. Our Father disciplines us for a little while, as they know best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Uh, Parents discipline their children. They help them to learn self-control, help them to learn how to live. But God's doing that for us, and not just that we'll just grow up to be little children to be adults, but God wants us to actually become holy. He wants us to be like him, because God is holy. He wants us to be people who are seen to belong to God by how they live, by how they value things, by whole their whole lifestyle and response to whatever happens around them, that they belong to God, they're trusting in Jesus, they're following Jesus, they're on the path to, to please God and to be with him forever, living distinctively as God's people. Where people are hope in God and hope in the promises given, the promises way back to Abraham, affirmed in Leviticus, the promises in Jesus, where people are white, where people have hope. And we know God's reliable because you've only got to look to Jesus and say, well, if God loved us so much he sent his son to die and Jesus loved us so much he died on the cross, wow, can I trust him? Yeah, with everything. And not hold anything back because he's got my best in mind for me. So let's keep pressing on. Let's keep pressing forward. And we're going to face some challenges. And and I wish I didn't do this sermon in one sense because this morning I had a horror. Everything that could go wrong before the 9 o'clock service went wrong. And it was just a litany of, I won't bother you, but litany of the end, phone calls and other things outside. Just, <laughs> I thought, what are you doing to me, God? Hang on, we're talking about self-control, saying no, don't get worried, no, don't get anxious, no, don't get upset, but self-discipline, let's keep going. Let's push on, let's trust God, and that's what he does. Every time those things go wrong in our life, and they will go wrong, it's a choice. Do we get weaker in Jesus or stronger? Let's get stronger. Let's say no to, to being worried and anxious. And I mean, if you're like me, you start getting worried and anxious, thinking, hang on a minute, that's not the right response. What am I getting worried and anxious about? Oh, no, I've got to backtrack and get focusing right again on God and have that peace of mind knowing God's in control. But let's be people who grow in that self-discipline. And the secret behind this is, in Galatians chapter 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. What's the last fruit of the Spirit mentioned there? Self-control. Self-control, self-discipline, same sort of stuff. God's put the means inside of us by his Holy Spirit. 
to keep focused on Jesus, to stop being turning away to worry and anxiety and whatever else, and to keep focused on Jesus and keep persevering and keep running the race and being triumphant in Jesus and whatever that's going to look like for us. Let me pray. God, how well you know us. And all of us can be having our own personal battles right now. Sometimes they come and we don't want to tell anyone. We just have to struggle with them. And Lord, sometimes we can feel so lonely and we can feel like maybe we want to give up. Help us to continue to see Jesus dying on the cross for us. Help us to see your great love in putting him there. Help us to see the love of Jesus for us in giving his life and taking the punishment for our sins. Let us be a people of hope, hoping that Jesus rose from the dead, hoping that we have a new life with you, God. And you're a God that we can trust and we can rely on. And Lord, help us to look beyond the the troubles that we have to continue to keep looking to you and looking to Jesus and keep running forward as we trust in you. Amen.